As always, it's a blessing uh, to be able to share God's Word with you on uh, Sunday morning. Uh, Jeff is spending the weekend with his family, uh, and specifically his dad, just spending uh, some time there in Virginia with him and uh, just enjoying that. Uh, and that gives me the opportunity to be able to share with you. Over the past few weeks, if you've been here through this series of I Want to Be Where the Rain Ends, you know that Jeff has a tendency to keep bringing in these characters from scripture that you may never have heard of and that have these small stories but very impactful and influential stories in the kingdom of God and in the history of God's word but yet you may have gone I didn't even know that that story existed um when I was asked to speak on this date I was looking at the calendar thinking am I going to be part of the where the rain in series or will I be the next series because if I'm part of the where the rain in series I have this competitive nature inside of me that says, I have to find someone who has been so hidden in Scripture to teach on in order to make sure that everyone knows, like, I can find, you know, these small characters too. Um, So then I prayed through that um, unhealthy thought and uh, thought, who do I really want to teach on today? God, who are you telling me to talk about? And from the time I took an Old Testament history class in college, Until now, I've had this um, connection or encouragement from this Old Testament character. His name is Shamgar. Everybody good with Shamgar? You know the story of Shamgar? Yeah? No? Okay, good. Um, Yes, success. I will pray against that. Um, Shamgar's story has spoken to me so many different times. If you have a Bible with you, Judges chapter 3, verse 31 is where I'm going to be. We'll put it up on the screen in just a second. The story of Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. That's all we got. It's going to be a short church service this morning. We've got one verse in Scripture about Shamgar. We have this guy who has an ox goad and some Philistines and some jujitsu skills or something to that effect that he wipes out 600 Philistines. We have one other verse in the next chapter of Judges that references Shamgar that goes back to him that says, in the days of Shamgar, this is what was happening. And it's in a song that Deborah writes for the success of saving Israel as a prophetess of Israel, as a judge herself with Barak, who's helping her as this general leader. They write this song and in it they reference Shamgar. But there's no more story about him. We have one verse in this whole big story that we have composed in Scripture about this man, Shamgar. And I remember the first time that I'm going through it, and as I see it, I had never noticed it between Ehud and Deborah and Barak. I hadn't really noticed this verse in the middle. And in the middle of this class, our professor just merely references it. And he's like, and then there was Shamgar who, you know, killed 600 guys with an ox goat. And I'm like, and there was? I didn't really... No one taught me that on flannel graph in Sunday school when I was growing up. We didn't have Shamgar and the ox goad. We had Ehud, the left-handed in junior high. That was like the junior high story to tell because it involves a sword, a really obese guy, and a bathroom. It's the best combination for junior high ministry that you could possibly get in storytelling. It just works every time. They're like, yeah, there's a toilet. Awesome. Um, 
and they remember it. So you've got that, and then you have the first Got Milk commercial on the other side. You get a glass of warm milk, and you're allowed to drive a tent peg in the side of a guy's head. That's Deborah and Barack's story on the other side of it. You have those two, and I was very familiar with those two stories growing up. And then down the line in Gideon and Samson and all of these judges, but I didn't know Shamgar. And I look at the verse, this one verse of Shamgar, and the question that like kind of stuck with me was, if this is God's story, and it's ultimately about him, would I be okay with just one verse about me? In all that I've experienced in life, would I be alright if all that he had to say about me was one sentence? Would all that you get from God, standing in front of his throne in heaven. The beginning of all the awe and the atmosphere is like, oh, this is great. Okay, what do you have to say about me, God? Was I, was I good? Because I think we kind of want to know. We've kind of got something inside of us that has this thing with our dad in heaven that says, I, I want to know that he's pleased with me. What would you say about me, God? And he's like, he stood with an ox goad and killed 600 Philistines and saved Israel. And? And that's all I got. And then there was Deborah and Barak. Is that what you want next? Oh, what what else about me? Like, I was here several years. Like, don't I get more than a sentence? No. It's a pretty cool sentence. Don't you remember that day? Like, you were all over that battle. Like, 600. It was you. 600. And a staff. Don't you remember that? Isn't that enough? Yeah, that was good. Can I have some more? I think when we stand before God on a daily basis, we have a tendency to ask for more about us in his story than just a sentence. We have a tendency to make the story about us, and that tends for us to start writing chapters about our lives instead of wondering or praying toward or meditating on or preparing ourselves for maybe the one sentence that God has for us in his story. We make our lives so important that we write books bigger than Bibles about our lives instead of diving on a daily basis into this word in order to engage in that story. We write our biographies, our memoirs, our blogs, our journals, our lives, and we don't have time for this because the story that we've began to write has become about us. And for a lot of us, if we want to be where the rain ends, if we want to be out of a lot of the frustration, confusion, desperation in our lives, a lot of the pain and suffering that we experience, we put ourselves into or we engage in and fail forward with because we write it as if the story was about us and that we were the central character. And most of the time when we're writing our own stories, we end up getting dumped on more than we end up succeeding. One story of defeating 600 of the enemy of God in a moment would be so powerful and overwhelming compared to most of the stories that we're allowing ourselves to write on our own in life. But we're so saturated as a main character in the story and we keep reading our own lives that we think, okay, next chapter's got to be better. I've got to write something better than this. There's got to be a success story in here. There's got to be a happy ending. I've got to write myself to that conclusion. And God's saying, wait a minute, why don't you take a break? It's my story. Why don't you let me write you in where I want you to be and then we'll move forward. But when we make the story about us, we end up 
in more tragedy than when we let God write the story. I like to go on a vacation every year, spend about two weeks away. The first week, my wife's family goes with us. So her parents, her brother, wife, and child spend the first week of vacation. The second week is for just our smaller group. Most every year for the last 10 or so years, we've all gone to Disney World. We just migrate into the world of Mickey Mouse for a couple of weeks. I have to have control of just about everything in my life. I'm working on it. But I have a tendency on vacation to only be able to be at peace when I know there's a plan. If there is no plan, I just kind of like go nuts because then we could do anything and then we end up doing nothing and then you end up wasting a day and then you've wasted money and then you've wasted travel and we should have just stayed home. You know that conclusion? Maybe some of you are like me and you're weird. Um, welcome to the weirdness. And so I have to plan it out and say, we're going to do this, this day, this, this day, this, this day. Now, if there's adaptations, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can change the day even on vacation. So if the Spirit wants to move us in a different direction than the plan, okay. But here's a plan. And so on one day, we're in Disney World a couple of years ago. And we wanted to take the kids to a breakfast where they could meet characters. One, so that they could meet characters. Two, I wanted an all-you-can-eat buffet because that's vacation. And so we're sitting down and we eat and as we're finishing up eating it starts to rain outside and I hear it and I'm thinking okay we're probably gonna need to change this game plan a little bit and I look at Sarah and say we should probably take the boat to the park because the boat is covered otherwise if we walk on this walkway then we're gonna get drenched so let's take the boat we'll go to the park and then we'll do this and this inside the park because it's inside and we'll be able to stay dry okay my game plan got changed you know Holy Spirit comes in we change it up and we just make something happen and so we're looking around the table saying, we're, here's what we should do. We should go to the boat, and then we should go to the park. And Sarah's brother's, brother, Tim, and his family are there, and they're leaving to come home later on that day. So he's like, yeah, but we've got the van here. And I'm kind of like, yeah, you could leave the van in the parking lot of this restaurant and then take the boat and stay dry and go with us to the park, and then we'll be in the park, and then you can come back. Your van's right here. You take off to the airport. It would work. He's like, no, I just want, I want to go ahead and have the van in the parking lot of the park. And I'm like... Okay, you can have your plan. Holy Spirit can work. That's cool. But I'm right. You're wrong. Um, but uh, you can do your, your own way. That's the way my mind thinks because that's just the way my mind thinks. Um, and so I'm like, all right, this is okay. So the problem was Tim wasn't driving the van. Sarah's dad was driving the van. So now the whole group except for the three of us, me, Sarah, and Sonny, have to go in the van to go into the parking lot to go into the park. We get on the, bu- on the boat go across it starts to rain outside and it starts to rain kind of harder and we're like oh it's raining really hard so we all get rain jackets on get the umbrellas out come out go into the park we're staying relatively dry even though it's raining we know what to do we go inside we go inside and see a show we come out of the show and i'm like where is your family sarah's like i don't know they should be here by now let me call them so she calls and sarah's dad picks up the phone and he is laughing hysterically And Sarah's dad doesn't always laugh hysterically. It takes really momentous things to get him externally laughing. And he's laughing and he's like, you're not going to believe what just happened. And Sarah's like, he's laughing so hard at this. And so she's laughing on the phone and he's telling this story that they get in the parking lot and they get out of the van. It's starting to rain pretty hard. They get onto the tram. It starts to rain harder. So Sarah's brother decides without consultation or grabbing everyone together 
He decides it's a bad idea to go in the park on their last day because it's raining, and so he jumps off the tram. But no one else knows to jump off the tram. The driver doesn't know to stop the tram after he jumps off. So he jumps off the tram. It's raining. Tram moves. All the water on top of the tram on Tim. Just, he just gets dumped on all this water. Now he's got a tram that's moving. He's soaked. It's raining. He walks back to the van. Not in the best of moods, I'm assuming. Um, walks back to the van to get in the van until, because the tram's got to go and drop all the people off and then come all the way back. So he walked over to the van to open the door and sit down. Vince has the keys to the van. So Tim is drenched, standing at a van, just getting soaked, getting ready to go into a park and then go to an airport. And he's just, just, mad, just pulling, you know, that moment where you're just pulling on the handle, like, if I pull harder, it will cease to work the way it was created to work and it will open for me. Like, you, you ever had one of those moments where logic's just gone? You know, it's just like we just got all get dumber in those moments. And he's just like pulling. It's not going to work. So he's just standing in the rain. And so Vince is telling us this. He's laughing while Tim's standing next to him. And he's like, so your brother's soaked and we got to go and get him new clothes. So by the time we get to the hotel, we walk in and there's Tim sitting in a brand new Mickey Mouse T-shirt. This is a 30 something year old man who, I mean, just shadows me so much taller and just built bigger than I am. And he's Mickey T-shirt. And Mickey Crocs. And I'm looking at him like, you're awesome. Like, you've just made my vacation. Because he's just sitting here, this, just kind of hunched over, all defeated. Like, yeah, I should have stayed on the tram. <laughs> because he's now doesn't get to go into the park. Doesn't get to have those last few moments of, you know, the happiest place on earth. Instead, he's like, I hate Disney. Disney didn't push you out of the tram into the rain. You jumped because the story became about you for a moment, but probably with good intentions. He's jumping out. As parents, you may have done this. You jump out. You're like, man, it's raining. We should probably change the game plan. We should probably do this because this isn't going to be fun anymore. You come to a conclusion of what's best for your family. You go and you move on it and you start it and your kids don't have any fun. And you turn around and you're like, why aren't you having any fun? I paid extra money so that we could do this. And they're like, we never really wanted to do this. Well, do you know how much I sacrificed for you? No, because you just did it. You didn't even invite us to be part of the conversation. And you want us just to be happy because you're out of your mind trying to come up with enough. We just wanted to hang out with you. And you've gone nuts and wasted the budget. And now the credit card's over and you're taking it out on me. You know those moments? <laughs> you're like, stop talking. This hurts. Um, that's when we're writing the story about us. Those small moments of life that then build into bigger moments of life that then get into bigger moments of life. Then we start with the small things and we make them so much about us in the moment that we end up getting dumped on. The water comes rolling off from a place that we didn't expect and now we're not just standing in the rain. We're saturated. We're soaked. And then that leads into frustration, anger, resentment, hurt, all those other places that we end up going. Simply because we make the story about us on a regular basis. In the book of Judges, the nation of Israel decided to make the story about them. They had been delivered from Egypt. Moses led them through the wilderness. He dies on the edge of the promised land. Joshua, his disciple, steps up as leader of the nation of Israel. He gives a vision statement for this nation. 
You can choose to serve who you want to serve now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you're coming with me, we're serving God. If you're following this direction, we're going with Him. And the nation begins to follow, and they see amazing things happen. Walls fall around cities, victory in the places that they are moving into this promised land, and they begin to take their spot in this beautiful land of milk and honey that God has provided for them. Nations choose to stand against them and say, no, you can't come in here, we're not going to share our land with you. They fight, Israel wins, Israel stands up when they were willing to follow God. Joshua is leading them to him. He's following with all of his heart toward this vision, we'll be God's people. They make a mistake and they screw it up. He stops, turns around, they repent, they move forward again. Always pushing forward to God. Joshua makes sure that the story stays about him. But then Joshua dies. And after Joshua dies, the nation of Israel, like so many of us do, when we leave our mentors, when we leave our homes, when our spiritual guides are removed from our life, we go test out the world. The nation of Israel starts testing the idols, starts testing the gods of the world. Maybe, maybe we would like that better. We've been watching that for a while, but Joshua wouldn't let us taste that. So now we're going to taste it. God wouldn't let us in it, but that God and Joshua, that, well, okay, we can do whatever we want now. And they begin to worship the gods of the world. And God, Yahweh God, makes a very key decision in that moment. He says... I'm not going to remove all the other nations from the promised land. I was, I was going to have you have this land by yourself. But because when I'm not leading you, when you won't let me lead you, you decide to go follow the world. You need them here because you need them to beat you up so that you'll beg for me. And if they're not here, you'll satisfy yourselves and you won't ever know me. So I've got to leave them here so that you can know me. I don't want to, but I have to. I'm not really excited about this season of war you're going to be in, but that's what it's going to take because you won't willingly follow me. You won't just let it be me and you and the rest of eternity. So off to war they went, and God began to raise up judges. Every time Israel would cry out for a savior after being enslaved by a nation, they would cry out, save us. And Othniel was the first, then Ehud, and then we have Shamgar. And he gets one verse. The stories between him are huge. I learned them in Sunday school. I've heard pastors preach on them. Books are written on them. Plays are done with those characters. But Shamgar... One verse, right in the middle of these two stories. Why? Why even put it there if it's just going to be one verse? Because the key is that the story is about God. And God puts into his story what is best going to guide us into knowing him at his fullest. It's not about Shamgar. The story never was about him. The story was always about God. And he wants to insert one verse, maybe for your life, maybe for my life, because it glorifies his name and builds his kingdom. And so sometimes we might just get one verse for an entire life. What do we learn from one verse about a guy? Well, the first thing that we learn is that he's this herdsman 
who has the name Shamgar, which is not an Israelite name. He has no history in the nation of Israel. A study of his name, Shamgar, son of Anath, would give us uh, an understanding that Anath is actually a Canaanite goddess. And since he's a Canaanite, the, the son of a Canaanite goddess, we would then connect him to the Canaanites, which were not the Israelites. So this is a guy who is not in God's chosen people. That's his name. Shamgar, not an Israelite. Just a guy from the Middle East. Well, what's, what's that do to your politics this morning? Just a guy from the Middle East saved God's chosen people. It's a very political statement for us. It's a big deal that it wasn't just people from God's chosen people who save Israel. It's not just those people that God uses. It's any people with any background who God chooses to use to build his kingdom and who will willingly follow are used in the kingdom of God. If we want to be outside of where the rain is, if we want to live a life for the kingdom, one of the things that we have to claim is our background doesn't matter. Kingdom of God. The junk that you put into your own background, all that stuff that you added as baggage, Kingdom of God doesn't stop him. Part of his story doesn't hold him back. It doesn't disqualify you because of the history and the past of your life. Where you grew up, how you grew up, ethnic background, race, culture, history, two parents, one parent, no parent, orphan, none of that matters in what God can do with you in your life. None of that has mattered, does matter, will matter. What matters is God uses people to illustrate his story. And so many times we carry the baggage of our background. Say, well, I'm not, I'm not as Christian as maybe they are, so what could God do with me? I went through this. I've been divorced four times. I filed bankruptcy. I had an abortion My history doesn't let God use me because of all that background. I was poor. I always grew up rich. I grew up in church. My parents are atheists. We all have backgrounds. Shamgar has a background. He was from the people who were in the promised land when the Israelites got there. He was from the nation that would be standing up against them from the very beginning of the Israelites getting there. He could be claimed or titled enemy of Israel because of his background. The background didn't matter. Because it's not his story. It's God's story. The last 48 hours or so, 24 of those, I was in a car. That was fun. Um driving to a wedding in Virginia. One of my former students was getting married. He has this tendency to do things far away. He was ordained as a youth pastor, um, and he had to do that in Jacksonville, Florida, last year. Thank you. 
um, and had to have me part of it. Great. Appreciate it. Love you too. And then he married a girl from Virginia. Um, even though he works in Beaver Creek, Ohio, we had to go all the way to Virginia for a wedding. And I'm like, great, thank you. Um, going to drive this one because the flights just wouldn't work out in order for the schedule. So we're driving all weekend. And as we are driving there, I have his twin brother in the back seat, And a friend of mine, um, Logan, who works here, is riding shotgun with me to keep me awake while we're driving. As we're driving, we keep goofing around going, man, is Jason really worth this trip? Like, is he really worth it? Like, we like the guy. But... Couldn't we have just, you know, I could have gotten in a tux and he could have video chatted me into the stage and I would have just stood like this on the Mac that was on this. That would have been sweet. Um, I could have heard everything and just, you know, fake walked out that bridesmaid. Um, it would have been awesome. And we're joking back and forth. And then we get there and we see Jason and, you know, hugs all around. We love this guy. He's fun. He's been part of our life for so long. And then we get to the rehearsal and rehearsal goes well. And I'm like, oh, weddings are fun. This is great. There's like five pastors in the wedding party. So we're feeling bad for the pastors doing the message because we're like, man, if you screw this up, we're all going to judge you um, because that's just how pastors do things. We were trained that way. And um, so we finish the rehearsal. It goes well. We go to the rehearsal dinner and we sit down at the rehearsal dinner and Jason comes up to me and everything, my whole perspective about the event just changed in a moment. He walks up and he puts his hand on me and he's like, hey, um, how's this go down? And I'm like, what do you mean? How's what go down? He's like the rehearsal dinner. Like, how's it happen? I'm like, well, we get, get everybody into the room, sit them down, get the food. You know, it's a buffet, get, get the food in here. And then um, we have, oh, that's what you're asking. When Jason was a junior in high school, his mom, who had severe arthritis that was then in a car accident, who then got pneumonia over Thanksgiving, passed away. And a few months after that, his dad, who had left mom when she got arthritis because he's a punk, and decided to become an alcoholic, had burned himself to the ground in a trailer because he was too drunk to remember that he lit a cigarette before he passed out, and he burned himself and died. And then a week later, Jason's cousin just finished a police academy, had a gun, shot his sister in the face. Jason didn't have family. So when he was asking, how's this thing go? He was asking, does my background matter? Like right now. Like, like who stands up and says, I'm proud of my son. I love who he's become. And we love that Mandy's now part of our family. Like, he's asking that question. Does my background make anything about this change, Chris, is what he's saying. And we lived through that experience together. And so I'm looking at him like, great. Now I'm thinking about that. How am I ever going to talk through this? Yeah, I'm here for you, man. Whatever. I'll talk, pray, whatever you need. But then the story gets better. Because then he goes and sits next to Mandy, his fiance. And he comes back over to me and he's like, um, I'm going to have dad pray. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that part of the story. That after Jason graduated high school, two of my youth leaders from the church that we were in 
called him and said, come live with us. And it started as a roof and food. And by his wedding rehearsal, it was dad. And so dad stood up. He talked about how proud of his son he was. And he prayed. And we ate and we fellowshiped. And I just kind of sat and thought, man, Jason had written this story about himself. He writes his background into every chapter for his future. God took my mom. I don't understand father. Why would I serve him? Instead, he claimed the truth that his background didn't matter. And he's a youth pastor married to an amazing woman with parents who love him, who encourage him and feed into him spiritual fruit and he grows the kingdom of God because the story isn't about him and his background didn't matter. And this weekend I was just thinking about that. Man, our backgrounds don't matter in the kingdom of God. Claim yours. Claim your background and stand on it as the foundation for God to be able to empower and use you to stand against the enemy that is coming at you. Whether it's 600, 6,000, an entire culture, or simply your boss at work. Stand on the truth that your background gives you the platform for God to speak his story in the moment and the place where you are. And then do the second thing that is in this one verse of Shamgar. Look at what's in your hand. Look at what you already have. We are such a culture that looks at what we have, looks at the problem in front of us, and then wishes we had something else. We will wake up Monday morning and wish for anyone but Carson Palmer to throw passes for our Bengals. If we're Browns fans, we will wish for any quarterback who can stay awake an entire game because they just keep getting knocked out. If we're a Steelers fan, well, we hate you, so please don't talk about it. Um, um, just kidding, in the name of Jesus. Um, we dislike you very much because you win. Um, from sports to our jobs to our kids to our finances to our cars to our politics, to our health care, to our world. We see the problem, we look at what we have, and we debate what else we should have. We sit and talk about it until we lose. And then once we lose, we get up and talk about what we should have had in order to win. The church is getting beat up in culture, in the world, by evil forces that are pressing down on the gospel because most of us sit in church either bound by our background or unwilling to use what God has placed in our hand because we think we have to have something else. We're waiting on the church to teach us how to make a sword and we've got a staff. And instead of fighting with the staff, we come to church and we sit in the, in the seat every Sunday until Jeff teaches us how to make a sword. And then when he teaches us how to make a sword, then he's going to teach us how to fight. And then once he teaches us how to fight, we're going to go out and fight. And God's going, we don't have any swords. They took them all. We've got staffs. 
So go beat up 500, 600 guys with it. When we choose as individuals and as a church to use what God already has given us for his kingdom, we will change the world. We will do it. Because then in the moment, we'll pick up what we have, probably laugh at it. If you're Shamgar, you look at this ox goad that pushes these oxen around, you see 600 Philistines with shields and swords and armor, and you look and you're like, (laughs) all right, let's go. Let's go do some work with this. This is humorous. Let's see how this works out. Well, that was fun. Jedi crazy tricks on these people. What you have in your life is enough to fight now. Don't believe the lie that another $50,000 a year, you'd be able to tithe. No, you wouldn't. You'd have more debt, more stuff, bigger house. You'd have bigger responsibilities. If you can't do it now, you won't do it with more. Do what God calls us to do with what you have now. You can be an amazing parent with what you have now. You can't put your kid in the room and go, okay, I'm going to go study on how to be a parent, and in five years I'm going to let you out. And I will know everything about how to parent you. But so many times we just kind of get stuck. The decisions get overwhelming. We're like, what? Wait a minute. If I had, if I had this, Sarah and I this week, we moved our six-month-old from just milk to milk and cereal. And it was one of those, such a weird moment that we're like, how much cereal? How many times a day? How do we know if she's actually getting enough? How do we know if she's getting too much? What's going to make her sick? What's, like, wait, where's the manual? And, and there are some, but I'm like, what? Until I know, how, and Sarah even asked me a question. She was like, how did people do this? Like, and I'm like, okay, let's take a step back from it. Our daughter's not going to come to us when she goes to college and said, Dad, if you had fed me cereal three times a day when I was six months old, I could be a brain surgeon, but now I can't because I only got one serving a day. And I'm like, that's just a, a stupid, sa- she, okay, she'll eat, <laughs> feed her. Okay, let's, let's dive in. But even simple things like we stop because we're like, well, I, I wish I had a manual. Well, I don't. So what do I do? I feed my daughter. If you don't have what you think you need, just go anyway. We have to claim the truth. What God put in our hand in that moment is what we can use to succeed in what is around us. Are you willing to use what God has given you now? Instead of blaming your ex-husband... Blaming your wife, blaming your kid, blaming your boss, blaming the American government, blaming communism, socialism, whatever other ism that we want to blame. Instead of stagnating ourselves and blaming, are you willing to say, yes, that is an issue. I will use what I have now to fight it. I will not sit still. I will not wait. I will fight with what I have. And will you take it up? And will you surrender it to God? Say, here you go. I know, it's humorous. Who do we need to fight? Who's standing against your kingdom?
who need saved. And Shamgar also saved Israel. Key phrase. Shamgar also saved Israel. Favorite thing about this verse, it's about Jesus. This verse is all about Jesus. Why is Shamgar in between Ehud and Deborah and Barak? Because there's only one true Savior that's eternal. Because every time Israel chose not to follow God, they had to send another judge to save them for that moment until they would then be freed, then choose to live against God again, and then they needed another guy to come in and fight. Moment by moment, Shamgar is one moment to save Israel against 600 Philistines in one moment. Some of the others we have 80 years 40 years, 30 years. Shamgar, we don't even have that. We have, and Shamgar also saved Israel. In like a moment, like right then, when those 600 Philistines were standing against Israel, that's when Shamgar saved them. Because the next verse says, and after Ehud, we have Deborah and Barak. So these are in the same lifespan. It's not like he stood in the gap for hundreds of years and Shamgar protected this nation from sin and death and suffering. He didn't stand in a gap. He gave breathing room for a moment for a group of people who were still going to need a savior. This verse is all about Jesus. And we need to make the story all about Jesus. Because yes, you can save somebody in a moment. You can be there in a crisis moment and you can step in and you can help them through a night, a week, a month, maybe a year. But you can't save them. You can save them for a moment. I can save them for a moment. I can jump into a crisis situation and help heal someone. And they walk out and they go, if Chris hadn't been there during that time, I don't know what I would have done. That's probably a true statement. You can put your name into the story. And in that moment, they don't know what they would have done. And yes, there was saving things that happened in that moment. But after that moment's over, saving moment ceases desperation begins again unless you point toward the great savior who eternally saved us all forever and for always unless you're looking to the jesus who said no i won't take that moment for israel and for the world i'll take all of it you can beat my body you can break me my blood will be poured out i will breathe my last i will spend the weekend defeating sin death and Satan and all of his evil forces, I will rise on the third day, show you that I am here, be successful in conquering everything that ever held you into bondage. Nothing can ever hurt you again. I stand as Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world, of the world, not of Israel in this moment. I am eternal Savior, Jesus Christ. You can lean on me. You never need another Savior again. That's what this story is about. Right there. That's what he's offering you this morning. Right there. Your background doesn't matter. Can use you wherever you've been, whatever's composed it, whatever you got, it's enough. You don't have to go get more and then come back to get Jesus. Whatever you have, he can win with you now. And there's only one Savior. God is writing His story in the book of Judges. He is telling us, provoking us, moving us to understand 
sin nature, pride, humanity, it draws you into that which is not God. It draws you into you becoming God. You need and always will need a Savior. He is illustrating to us Ehud, Shamgar, Gideon, Samson. Humans save moments. Jesus saves eternally. Do you want that Savior? Do you need to reclaim that Savior? Have you been writing your own story? Maybe this morning it's time for you to write God into yours and end your book. And let him write you into his. Maybe you're desperate for a savior that saves you once and for all because you can't keep saving yourself. Maybe at one point in your life you claim that Jesus and then you put that false tagline behind him that he's a savior like every other savior and then he saved that moment and then you didn't let him save every moment after that because you will fall. You will find satisfaction in the world for a moment and you have And instead of returning to the Savior that saved you in one moment, for every moment, you went back to trying to save yourself. Maybe this morning that's you. So we're going to close with just spending some time with God, just a couple of moments. You can close your eyes and just begin to pray to Him. And if you've Never confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you can't live without this promise that He has saved you from every burden, every sin, every desperate moment, and that He is the way and the truth and the life. There is nothing that you need to do to receive Jesus except invite Him. Invite him to be your Lord and Savior. And you can pray these words to him now. Jesus, I believe in you. As the Son of God, Savior of the world, who resurrected from death, you bought my sin and conquered it. I invite you to be my Lord, to be my Savior. Teach me your ways. Maybe this morning you need to reaffirm that statement. You've pursued God, but you've gone so far away. He loves to hear you say that you still love him. You could just pray this prayer. And Jesus, 
I need you. Restore my soul. I claim your blood from the cross that covered my past, present, and future sin. In your name, I claim freedom. You are my Savior and my Lord. God, I pray that we would live as freed men and women. I pray for those in this room who would have just confessed you for the first time. We praise you for their salvation. We praise you for the Holy Spirit that comes upon us and that dwells in us and that teaches us and guides us. We praise you for the redemption of those of us who began to try to save ourselves and wrote ourselves back in as the character of the story. We praise you for our restoration, redemption, and healing. It's through you that we see God and we claim that truth. It's through your sacrifice, through your resurrection, that we pray this prayer. Amen. If you confess Jesus for the first time, that's not the end of your story. It's not the end of you being written into God's story. There's much more that we would love to share with you. So please connect with myself um, after the service or contact us this week because we have a lot we want to talk to you about from baptism to discipleship. We have aspects of pursuing God that we want to unveil with you. Don't forget tomorrow, 6.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., The church is open for you to come and pray, to seek God with us. We want to champion you and be there with you if there are difficult times or if you uh, approach anyone today and they need prayer or they need encouragement, please pass that on to them. Um, As a church, we love you. Have a great week.